Hello, and welcome to the Whole Equestrian Podcast, where we're bridging the gap between riding and wellness, discussing topics related to mindset, fitness, nutrition, and community. Our mission is to promote health and happiness through our love of horses. I am Dr. Tyler Held, a certified mental performance consultant with my doctorate in sport and performance psychology, a lifelong learner, a gym owner and purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and someone who's really excited to be here today. Um, We are joined by a very fun guest who I connected with via Facebook, uh, Dr. Pamela Reed Band, who has a lot to say about fear, uh, riding, coming back from injury, and I really enjoyed talking to her and I really, really enjoyed her book. Um, As I sort of grow and develop my practice of sport and performance psychology, I feel like there's even more of a need for people that are afraid and just want to get back to the enjoyment of the sport and of their horses. Uh, than there is of people that are going on to be the best of the best. And so this one struck a chord with me, and I hope it struck a chord with you. So with that, I will let the recording take it away with uh, Dr. Pam. Pam, I'm just going to, I feel like you've got so much cool stuff in uh, the about the author section of your book, which we'll get into, but uh Instead of reading it, I would like to hear from you about your bio, background, uh, your connection to the horse world, and everything that we can kind of expect to hear about today. Well, I'm just delighted to be here and and tickled to meet you, Tyler, I want to say. It's funny, I can give you a bio, and I can even make it sound really, really impressive, uh, if you would like. I am a, a retired medical doctor. I have degrees from the University of Michigan, go blue, uh, the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and postgraduate work done at the University of Kentucky, where I then served for 15 years as an assistant or as an associate professor, clinical associate professor. Uh, So long career in medicine and anesthesiologist with some consulting in critical care and pain medicine. I'm a woman of a certain age. I'll confess to getting very close to 70, but beyond that, my mama told me I never had to tell anyone how old I was unless they were a policeman or a bouncer. (laughs) So not going to say anything else about that. I've got a husband who I've been married to almost 50 years, a couple of kids, and three grandchildren. That's the official uh, impressive sounding bio. Uh, To that, we'll add, I've been in horses since the 1960s, raised Tennessee walking horses, uh, showed them uh, in just about every division you can show them from walking weanlings to showing at the celebration, uh, flat shot, heavy shot, I'm sad to say, uh, versatility, driving, done just about everything you're allowed to do on a horse. Uh, Then I got into trail riding, uh, went to some trail trials. And finally discovered endurance riding. So now as I get old and crippled, I've picked the most physically demanding part of all. (laughs) That's the impressive part of the bio. Yeah. With all that, the most, um, not impressive, what's the word I want? The The most public part of my bio probably comes from a picture that's being shown all over the internet of me flat on my back in the middle of a horse trail in middle Tennessee, 
uh, passed out practically uh, from dehydration and heat stress. Uh, it's like, you know, what are you going to be known for when you die? Well, probably that picture of me in my favorite red shirt with my horse standing over me is going to be it. <laughs> but that's uh, that's from the middle of the book. So that that's getting into the middle instead of the beginning. Um, the book itself is is basically recounting the last four years of my life. And that would sound pretty boring. I mean, who wants four years of an elderly woman's life? until you realize that what happened to me happens to an amazing number of people. It has shocked me since the book came out, the messages I've gotten, the emails I've gotten from people who have shared similar experiences. And so I, people are like, how'd you come up with a book? Well, I lived it. That's the hard part. And then one day I decided I'd better sit down and write it out. I, yeah, I, I mean, I really enjoyed the book. And, and for our listeners, the book is called Three Steps Up to Mediocrity, which I really love as well. Uh, just the the title and the imagery that that gives to our horse listeners of uh, that three-step mounting block and the sort of fear associated with standing and, and getting on a horse after you've had a bad fall. Well, and it wasn't just a fall. I mean, people have, and one of the reasons I decided to write the book is because people have a, a misconception about a fear of riding and how it happened. And they, they think that you have a bad fall, you spend three weeks in the ICU, and then when you go to get back on your horse, you can't. So you hunt up the great horse whisperer, guru, whoever, um, who never really looks like Robert Redford, unfortunately. And, and he gets you back on a horse and two weeks later, you win the Olympics. Right. But that isn't what happened to most people. And it certainly isn't what happened to me. My story started with a two-year hiatus of riding. Now, I had ridden from the 1960s until this two years. When my husband got very sick, I was still working. I was in the main hospital in Arizona where we were living was four hours away. So I didn't have time to ride. And I moved all the horses to a horse trainer, cowgirl, who was three hours away and just said, you know, keep them in shape and take care of them for me while I deal with Greg's illness. It took two years before we were able to bring the horses home again after that. And that's two years during which I probably did not ride two times. Right. When I finally got back on the horse, now as an elderly woman, I found that I didn't ride well anymore. I'd always ridden and ridden without thought to it. But now I had pains in places I didn't have before. I had weakness in places I didn't have before. I had numbness and I was unsure of myself. So the trails I used to train on that looked hard, I started avoiding because I was a little afraid of them. But the more I avoided them, the more the medium-sized trails looked hard. So I started to avoid those. And the more I avoided those, the more the easy ones started to look a little scary. And so one day after that progression downward, I was riding in my front lawn in Arizona, which isn't a lawn, it's just dirt. And the mare I was on, her name is Skeeter, tripped, went down to her left knee. Because I was off balance and not riding well, I fell forward onto her neck because I was afraid I grabbed with both arms 
ended up right behind her ears and wouldn't let go. So when I fell, not only did I land on my left side on the concrete like Arizona dirt, but I bulldogged her down on top of me. I mean, she never had a chance. Um, and that was my straw that broke the camel's back moment. I didn't have uh, much in the way of lasting injuries. I tore my right rotator cuff and that still bothers me. I bruised the bones all down my left side and got a lot of soft tissue damage, but nothing that required hospitalization or casts or anything like that. But what was really broken was my mind. And a week, two weeks later, maybe, I finally got up the courage to pull my grandchildren's horse out of the barn and work him in the round pen for about 30 minutes and then get on him. And I got on him, but I was shaking and walked him around my round pen and he tripped. Now we're not talking, this is not a trip that took him anywhere near the ground. It was just one of those little bobbles that everybody makes, including horses, but it had me shaking and sobbing and practically throwing myself off of him. I was so petrified that he yeah. was going to go down. And that's the last time I got on a horse again in Arizona. I could not make myself. I would get Charlie out. Charlie's the grandkid horse. I'd work him in the round pen. I'd look at that mounting block and I couldn't get up it. I actually started to vomit when I tried to make myself climb my mounting block. And in the middle of that, my husband and I decided that we wanted to move closer to our children who are in the Southeast and who had no intention of moving to Arizona. So we put the ranch up for sale. I moved the horses back to my cowgirl trainer friend to keep them while we cleaned up and packed up and everything. And we bought a place in middle Tennessee, moved there. So now I've gone another year without riding. I sold Skeeter, the mare that fell with me, even though it wasn't her fault that she fell with me. I felt like I have now gotten too old and too fat and too out of shape. She was a, a lovely endurance horse, but not overly large. And I am overly large. She has carried me for nine years with no trouble. So when I was a decent rider, she was fine. But now that I needed something that could hold me up, even when I was out of balance, I needed something better than Skeeter. So I went looking for another endurance horse, even though my husband and my friends all kept telling me, you don't need another endurance horse. You just, you just, just trail ride Charlie. Yeah. I was too embarrassed to admit to them. I was still too afraid to get on Charlie. And here I am looking for a horse that has the wherewithal to do endurance. Now I ride Tennessee walking horses. I'm not on an Arab or a Mustang who are probably the best at endurance, mm -hmm. but I'm not trying to win anything either. I'm the embodiment of the AERC motto, which is to finish is to win. So I went looking for something that could carry me safely out of anything I put him into, who could just manhandle me. And since that was what I was looking for, I, of course, brought home a 14-3 hand, 900-pound little ball of energy and fire. 
because Lord knows, let's not pass up an opportunity to perhaps make a really big mistake. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Like sometimes you just, you know, you just like yeah. the horse. You're just like, but yeah. I mean, he was in my defense. <laughs> I will say, first of all, he was perfectly built. He was an absolute dream of a perfectly built horse. When you close your eyes and picture an all-around, well-built, can-do-anything horse, that was him. Second, when I bought him, I, I couldn't ride him. I still wouldn't get on him. So I'm buying this horse without riding him. So the trainer is demonstrating this horse to me. And the trainer has a cast on one leg. He's just gotten out of the hospital and explained to me that the horse hadn't been ridden in six weeks. He'd been in a stall. Because, of course, that's how we all buy our horses, right, is when they're fresh, untrained, and being ridden by someone who's completely off balance. But it turned out to be a good thing because as, as the horse moved away, I could see this trainer was completely off balance. And I could see the horse was deliberately holding his body in such a way as to keep him on top of him. I'm like, I've never seen a horse do that. Yeah, but yeah. The trainer's bigger than I am, and the horse is handling him just fine. And I don't know what why, but I just loved this horse. And so I bought him for his perfectly athletic body and the fact that he could balance a big, heavy trainer who was off balance. But also... I went back to see him a second day. I gave the trainer another day to, to ride him. And then I wanted to see him again because he had looked really scary the first day I was looking at him. <laughs> I mean, he was just a bundle of energy. <laughs> and so we, when we got there the second day, they had him saddled and bridled and um, hobbled out in front of the barn to prove to me that he could hobble, I guess. Not that I ever do it, so I didn't care, but that's what they wanted to show. Yeah. And I walked up and I petted him for a few minutes and the trainer didn't show up. So I said, we better go to the barn and look for him. I turned around and this poor horse hopped towards me and stretched his head out like, pet me again. Come on, pet me again. I, I don't normally attribute needs for affection to a lot of horses, but my heart melted. You know, here this, this poor guy was and I just had to have him. So I bought him, still petrified, won't get on my grandkids' horse, still throwing up whenever I look at the mounting block, and still not actually quite telling my husband just how deep a problem I had. And I tried one more time in Middle Tennessee to get up on Charlie, which did not go particularly well, although I did stay there like 10 minutes. And then I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do I have Shiloh, the new bundle of energy that I am petrified of getting on, although his ground manners are impeccable. I have Charlie, who's just as safe as a sofa, and I'm still scared of getting on him. And I had no idea what to do. I've got friends here that I've had some my entire life, some just for a year or two, who want to go out and trail ride come fall, and this is midsummer. I wanted to go and I told him I wanted to go, but I was thinking to myself, how on earth are you going to go trail riding when you can't ride around the round pen without vomiting? Yep. So one of my friends said, well, 
why don't you call Scott McGregor? Now, you got to understand about Scott. I have known Scott since the 1980s. I showed against his mother. So his mother and I were show acquaintances, and I would nod at Scott a time or two as I watched him grow up. I knew that he had formed his own training barn, and I knew that he had branched out into Western dressage with gated horses and the flat shod rail horses. Mm -hmm. I served on a couple of committees with him. I've been on a couple of boards for walking horse organizations. And so, but, but those meetings had always been on the phone and I'd been in Arizona for 25 years. I hadn't seen Scott at all um, other than to glimpse him, glimpse him at a horse show maybe once or twice. But I, I knew of him and I knew his reputation and I knew from talking to him that this was a solid, honest kind of person who would give me a good opinion. And I wanted him to ride Shiloh. I thought, well, you know, the horse now hasn't been ridden in six weeks since we've moved to Middle Tennessee. And I just need somebody to ride him for me for a while while I figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. So Scott came over to the house after I called him up and asked him if he would evaluate what to do with this horse. I'm sure he was rather shocked. Uh, although he told me he knew I'd moved to Murfreesboro. He got out of his car and instead of the 25-year-old budding young trainer I was expecting, what got out of the car was a middle-aged man. I was shocked. I, somehow the 25 years that had gone by that had made me elderly had never occurred to me that Scott had also grown up. Um, then he said something about his grandson, and I immediately shriveled into complete and total doddering old age. I mean, when you've seen someone grow up in the show ring and then suddenly they're a grandfather, you feel old. Uh, but I'm, I was very fortunate because had he been the guy I was thinking he was, I don't think what happened next would have happened next. He rode Shiloh and I watched him. He asked for a few more rides on him to, to decide exactly what he thought. And I gave him to him. And after that, he agreed to ride Shiloh and keep him legged up and reasonably trained because I told him I was having to learn to develop ways to cope with some physical problems and a little bit of what I told him was anxiety. Uh, and it would be a few more weeks probably before I was ready to get on Shiloh. So he agreed to do that. Well, as those weeks went by, it became very clear to Scott that what he was dealing with was absolute fear, <laughs> not just a little anxiety. <laughs> and, a, and a crippled old lady, not just somebody with a few physical problems. <laughs> <laughs> the truth comes out. Yeah, I mean, and we finally, at one point, I got a, got up the courage to sit him down on my back porch and tell him, okay, I'm really having a lot more trouble than I said, and are you willing to work with me as well as with Shiloh? I was quite surprised when he said, oh, yeah, I've done that for people. That's not a problem. I said, I, I don't even know where to start. He goes, that's okay. We'll start wherever you're comfortable. I know where we'll start. It's not a problem. I've done it before. I had no idea he did this. It was a brand spanking new revelation to me. But that was probably the best thing that's happened to me in five years was Scott being willing to take me on and finding out that that he had helped a few people before. He doesn't do it for a living. He's a horse trainer for a living. 
but he was willing to take on the project. More importantly, he knew how big the project would be. I didn't. I literally thought I was asking him to maybe hold the horse once or twice while I got on him. Maybe if it was a bad day, lead me around until I was comfortable. And that was all. I, I was too wrapped up in the fear at that point to have any grasp of how deep it went or how serious it was. Um, but that's how I got hooked up with Scott and how I ended up in my house watching Scott work Shiloh in my front pasture through my windows because I was too afraid to go out the doors. I was petrified that if I went out and showed myself, he would get off and tell me I needed to ride. Yeah. And I couldn't do that. And and so I, I went from window to window and watched him for weeks. Me, and, and this was a huge imposition on Scott's time. It's not like I live next door to his barn. We we're across town. So he would work his regular training horses. He keeps somewhere between 10 and 15 in training at all times. And then when he was done, he'd grab some lunch, eat it in the car on the way over here, which takes 45 minutes. Murfreesboro is a fairly good-sized town. Then he would get Shiloh ready and ride him for 45 minutes or so, and then he'd put him up, and then he'd drive back home. And I will tell you, he was not charging me enough to pay for his gas at that point. Wow. I mean, it was amazing that he was willing to do that. And he knew how long it was likely to take. I would never have had the courage to ask him if he could have done it. It was too big an ask. But that was what I needed. I, I asked him afterwards. A lot of the conversations in the book where I talk about this is what Scott was thinking. I'll say, you know, I asked him later because at the time, I didn't have any appreciation of what he was really doing. I was too caught up in what was wrong. Right. I asked him later, why did you do this for me? I mean, you barely knew me. And he said, because you needed it. That was all, because you needed it. I mean, how many people in this world not only have the skill set to help somebody else, but are willing to sacrifice all their spare time for a year going into it to help out. Not not very many that I know. That's you're quite lucky with him. I I, I just I lucked out amazingly. And, and especially when you consider this is not what he does. Right. You know, it, this is this is not his job. Uh he's not trained to do it at all. Uh yeah. he's got a degree in horse science and most of a degree in photojournalism, actually. Um, <laughs> Which is why there are so many pictures in the book, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, that's that's the beginning of the story. Yeah. And, and the rest of the book is is what Scott and, and my other friends did to to get me out of this. I'll confess, I finished the book thinking that I was cured. I have since found that I'm not. <laughs> yep. But that's another story. <laughs> well, um, and, and yeah, that's something that as I work with a lot of athletes and uh, fear and anxiety and equestrian sports and stuff like that. And you think you make a lot of progress. There's always things that pop up that put you back down the 
rabbit hole of fear and anxiety. And it's, it's a constant battle. It really is. I, I, I discovered that uh, I, I sent the book to the publisher in January of this year. And I was back fully riding endurance rides at that time, riding Shiloh, who has turned out to be the other major miracle of this. Um, but there's a horse that Scott had ridden with me several times, whose picture is actually in the book with Scott on him a couple of times, the horse named Max. And mm-hmm. I had loved Max several. And, and I, I said to, to Scott while we were riding, you know, if 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 his owner ever decides to sell him, and it's, he's anywhere near my price range, which I don't think he is, I, I would be delighted. <laughs> well, she decided to sell him and she decided to sell him at the very tip top of my price range. Uh, so I told Scott that I would take, I would like to buy Max in April. I, I said this never having ridden him. So we made the deal. I would go to Scott's barn and at least ride him before we shook on it. And I got up on Max, who is 16, one, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe two, and feels and looks a lot different than Shiloh. Okay. Uh, he's massive. He's fast. He's, he's not particularly more powerful, but he's more sweeping in his, in scale. He, his strides are longer. And, you know, it, all this anxiety came running back. But I, I stayed at Scott's barn for a week, riding him in the indoor. And then Scott suggested that the next Monday I come back and we'd go out on his trails behind his barn. So the next Monday I come back to ride my new horse. I put my my saddle on him for the first time. Scott got on the only horse in the barn that's bigger than Max, a horse named Shadow. And his assistant trainer got on a little mare that they were trail training for the trail at the time. We all went out on the trails behind the barn. Now, my bar for a bad ride is pretty low. Uh, you know, it's, you can just stumble on that easily. And to me, that ride was a catastrophe. Oh, no. Uh, Max jigged and jiggled. He went sideways. He wanted to go fast. He, he jumped a, a two-foot ditch with a six-foot jump. I panicked. And Scott reverted to his usual breathe, Pam, breathe, staying right next to me. You know, it's okay. Breathe, breathe. We did about four miles and went back to the barn, at which point Scott turned me out in the indoor and told me to ride around in circles until I was bored. Um, I rode for an hour. I wasn't bored yet, but that was about all I could take. Yep. And I, I gave him a very perfunctory goodbye and I left. Next day, I came back ready to confess to Scott that I could not buy this horse. I was petrified. But Scott beat me to the confession by saying, Pam, you have to understand, I set you up yesterday for that. He said, that was as bad as Max ever gets. And you had to see how bad Max could be before you took him home. He said, I didn't ride him Saturday or Sunday. He normally gets turned out Monday morning, but now it's Monday morning and we're taking him out riding. I put a jiggity, nervous young horse behind him and the one horse in the barn he hates next to him. I set you up for a bad day. I said, yeah, and I couldn't handle it. I had flashbacks. I just, you know, he said, no, I set you up for a bad day. You had flashbacks and you handled it. He said, you know, granted, your heart was outside your chest for a few minutes there, but you didn't panic. You didn't jump off the horse. You didn't give him conflicting signals. 
you know, you handled it. You had a hard time, but you handled it. I said, I, I can't just don't think I can do this, Scott. And he goes, it'll be easier next time. Because eventually, because I said, I thought I was over it. He said, you're never going to be over it. You had to see that. You're, he said, what best you can hope for is that when these things happen and you have those moments, you go, at some point you'll say, oh, you again, I know how to handle you. Yep. Take a deep breath and put your big girl panties on and handle it. He said, it'll get better. I said, you really set me up? He said, yeah. I said, do you really ride Shiloh just because he's big enough to keep Max under control and no other horse in the barn is? At which point I got greeted with silence and a look that says, yeah, but I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I said, you know, Scott, I'm still mad at you. <laughs> he said, you'll get over it. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because I feel like um, that really resonates with the moment that you had in the book uh, where it was like kind of like the first time that Shiloh spooked and scooted and you were like oh nothing happened and that's the weird thing about our sport specifically is you can't control so much of it right a plastic bag could ruin your day uh absolutely and And, or nothing can ruin your day I mean I never found out whatever was Shiloh made Shiloh apparate from one side of the trail to the other yeah I mean I never saw it whatever it was you know yeah. But you're right. I, I it's 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 like that meme that says the the problem with horseback riding is that you have to learn to be in complete control in a situation in which you have no control at the yep. same time. Yep. And I, I I I guess you know as I have aged and as I've gotten less control. I mean my problem my my main problem is that I have I have chronic pain syndrome, but I have. Uh, spinal stenosis in two places that's exacerbated by riding so when I get on the horse the longer I ride the more my nerves get pinched and the more my nerves get pinched the less reliable my legs become yep until after an hour and a half or so I can't really do anything delicate or deliberate or strength requiring with my lower legs I have to do it all with my thighs and my core to stay on, which is where Shiloh's unique ability to help me balance comes in. Um, but, you know, so you're, I'm losing control of my body at the same time. I was kind of losing control of my mind. This is not a good combination. <laughs> well, and, and losing control of your mind, but in a way that makes a lot of sense, because when you have a fall experience, traumatic event, your brain is going to say horse is bad, right? You went through pain and your brain is built number one on survival, right? That's our number one need is survival, protection, conservation. And so what I always kind of coach people into with fear and anxiety, like when they're coming back from a fall, it's not oh my gosh, why do I feel this way? I've ridden my whole life. I'm so stupid. It's how cool that my brain knows that I got hurt on a horse and it's putting up the alarm systems and the bells to sort of protect me from getting in that situation again. And 
building back confidence and using a value system to say, no, I love this. I'm going to overcome it. And exactly kind of like how you and Scott go in the book of just chunking away and building of these are the things that make me feel safe, right? I can walk mm-hmm. in around and then I can walk on a trail that's close to home. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, now I feel good enough to take my horse off property. And okay, now all of a sudden, you know, the pieces fit together and I'm back to endurance right? Yeah. And it, and it was a, it wasn't even chunking. It was nibbling. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there were days where the the step forward was so tiny and I didn't even recognize that Scott was doing it. I mean, I, I apologized to him after, after the book, after we got done with the book and handed it in the publisher, I had to, he did, first of all, he didn't know I was writing a book until I showed up with the printed pages off my printer one day I said, I need you to read this um, because I wrote this book and it's sort of mostly about you. And so if you don't want a book published about you, you need to tell me, yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if you think that I said, I'll be glad to change your name, but there's no one in the Tennessee walking horse world that isn't going to know exactly who I'm talking about, quite frankly. Right. You know, yep. there's only one guy that fits this description. And and I said, but if you if there's any incident here I talk about that you don't want anyone to know about, then I will take it out. But you're the only one who has total veto power, or I will even not publish it at all. Although I'm have gone to all the trouble to write it, and that would be really mean of you to ask me to do that. <laughs> so here's this book. Yeah. And 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 by the way, when you're done, and and when he told me when he got done that that night, he um. You know, he said, no, you, you, I have, how would I object? You know, I have an objection to this. But I said, okay, I need you to write an afterword. I said, actually, my publisher would like it if you would write a book the same length as this one so we could have two halves from my standpoint and from your standpoint. He said, yeah, that's not going to happen. I said, okay. In that case, I'd like a page or two, preferably laughing at me a lot. That, that would be good. Um, and so I got the afterword out of him. Afterwards, I after I quit crying, after reading it, I had to sit down and apologize to him. I said, you know, I never thought until I read this afterward, what I put you through. I mean, this is a really nice guy. This is a very, very sensitive, gentle guy. And the knowledge that for the year that it took for me to get even reasonably comfortable the knowledge that if anything happened in that year, I would probably never ride again, that I would be irreparably broken. It weighed on him and it didn't even occur to me. Yeah, I, I was oblivious to the stress I was putting him under for that year. It just, you know, I, I look back at it and I go, how could I have been so stupid? And, but when I apologized to him, when I said, I'm really sorry, I just cannot believe I didn't even think of that. He's like, damn, fear is one of life's most self-absorbing emotions. He said, That's you true. didn't have enough room in your brain for eating and sleeping barely, I, you know, let alone thinking of something from my point of view. Then he said, I knew I didn't want to write that afterward. <laughs> <laughs> Th- 
Yeah, no, I mean, and and reading, uh, getting that point, I I would love to to read a book. Maybe maybe he'll agree to come on the podcast. We could talk about it on the podcast uh, because yeah. his, his perspective was was quite interesting, and uh, it is like it's funny to me to to read it as someone who's uh, a practitioner and you know got mm-hmm. my doctorate in sports psychology. I'm like Scott. Scott's got it. He's got it figured out. Like he knows the tricks and tools of sports psychology. And I wish I was a horse trainer too, and I could do like a hybrid sort of. <laughs> session because uh it's a huge barrier to intervention for me when I have a rider that's dealing with fear anxiety and they've got an old school equestrian person that's like oh well if you're afraid like maybe you should get a goldfish or uh you know a hospital or on like let's keep going let's keep pushing through there there is the the old school equestrian mentality that we're tough and we just don't have fear and I think that's stupid I think that fear is a important and healthy emotion that you learn to live and navigate with adaptively but if you shove it down and suppress it you're going to end up way far beyond where you want to be in your riding in your life um and and in your enjoyment of things as well exactly I mean it I've seen so many people talk about it and talk about people with fear in a way that shames them. And I'll tell you, I was already so ashamed. I really don't think I could have stood anyone openly shaming me about it. I mean, I, I was so ashamed of the fact I was so afraid. I mean, I've ridden for 60 years and I was throwing up at the thought of climbing my mounting block. Yeah. Uh, You know, I mean, how do I tell my best friend in the world who knows almost all my secrets, but whose father taught me how to show a horse, you know, that now I'm afraid to ride. I just, you know, so you can't be shamed into it. What Scott did was he went out and showed me what Shiloh could do yep. without ever asking me to ride him. He put him in front of me as a constant temptation. You know, he was always showing him. We would go on, when I finally got comfortable enough with Charlie to trail ride, Scott would invite me out to trail rides when he took clients. And he would say, bring Shiloh, I'll ride Shiloh. At the time, I thought that he was training Shiloh. It turns out what he was doing was showing me how good Shiloh was so that I would trust him. And, and, and that's what he talks about in his afterward is that the hardest part was the early part of getting me to trust Scott and getting Shiloh to trust Scott. Yep. While unbeknownst to me, he also taught Shiloh to look to Scott for leadership, not to me. Yeah. Yeah. I would have been hurt about if I'd have known at the time, but it makes perfect sense. He didn't know what I would panic completely. And, and yet he, he had to have a way to, to tell Shiloh everything was okay and to calm him down. If, if I panicked, um, I, he never had to use it. But I thought it was very interesting that he did that. I still don't know how he did it. And he yeah. said a lot of horses he couldn't have done it with, but Shiloh was was just special. 
Yeah, no, awesome. That's I mean, Shiloh having... has turned into, I mean, I cannot tell you how fantastic this horse is. Uh, pardon my horseman's brag, but <laughs> from Scott's training and, and now his own temperament, he is almost the perfect handicap assist horse. I mean, I, I, can't, I, I, I can't walk upstairs without handrails. Wow. And that becomes a problem with a three-step mounting block. Yep. So Shiloh will stand at that mounting block and let me haul myself up using him as a handrail on his breast collar or his saddle or whatever I need to. Sometimes it's his tail or his mane, depending. Um, and then when I get on, he will stand there until I am completely centered and ready to go. When we ride, he moves under me to help me balance. He's just amazing. But what I didn't understand until the last endurance ride we did, that Scott and I did together, we just did in uh, June, I finished, uh, Scott was done ahead of me, so he met me at the finish line. This is after 50 miles and 11 and a half hours in the saddle, which when, when that happens, when I ride that long, I never know if my legs will hold me when I get off. Yep. I never know if my legs will work well enough for me to actually swing the right leg over. So Shiloh will let me drag it over, drag it over his rump. He'll let me rest my leg on his rump if I need to for a little bit. And then lean over the saddle and kind of kick my legs until I get my back straightened out enough that my legs start to function a little better. And then he stands perfectly still while I slide down that saddle and use him to support me until my legs will. Well, I didn't appreciate it. We went back to the barn and, and I went through my sack of potatoes dismount. And, and Scott commented on our way home. He said, you know, I hadn't appreciated until then how much Shiloh no longer looks at me. He said, you, you took him, you put him right in front of the hay bag and the water after a 50 mile ride. You did that. He had an ear cocked and his head turned slightly sideways after he got all four legs absolutely braced and, and solid under him until you stepped back and petted him and said, good boy. He didn't reach for the food. He didn't reach for the water. He just listened to you. And then later on that night, he, Scott and I went to the, to the barn to, to check on the horses and Scott was, Scott got there first. He was telling me, he said, you know, I walked up and Shiloh cocked an ear at me. He goes, you walked up, Shiloh left the feed, walked over, nuzzled you, put his head over for some petting, and did not leave you until you turned away and left. He said, he's your horse. He's no longer even close to mine. He's yours. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I've never had a horse like that. I just, it's its the most amazing thing. Yeah, he's hes your heart horse. You found him. Yeah. I mean, I've had a couple, I've had a couple of others. I would have thought, thought, told you were, um, one of which I just, just lost this February after 30 years, but I, I will not, I would not pretend that Bobby cared for me anywhere near as much as I cared for Bobby. <laughs> right, right. You know, he was an amazing ride and we were, we made a, a, a hell of a partnership, but there's something about Shiloh. He really, I really get the feeling that he cares. And the the day of that photograph, when we were on the trail, Scott also told me that was the first day he noticed it. That was a year before this ride. 
But, you know, for the folks listening, I let myself get dehydrated and get heat stress. And so we're miles from the trailer and I had to say, I got to get off. I'm so dizzy. I'm about to pass out. Got off the horse, laid down in the middle of the trail. It took about 30 minutes for me to get enough water in me to start feeling better. During that period of time, Scott took the picture, which ended up on the internet. Uh, but the horse in the picture right in front of me is Shiloh. And Scott told me, he said, you know, I noticed you were on the ground. He said, Shiloh never took his eyes off of you. You were down there for 30 minutes. He didn't start looking for somewhere to graze. He didn't head to the trailer. He just stood there and watched you. And I can remember, I have a mental picture of that day. When I got tried to get up, I, I turned on my 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 face and put both hands down to the ground to push myself up. And I looked down and my hands were right next to Shiloh's front hooves. And his legs were covered with flies. One stomp would have broken multiple fingers. Well, and he never moved. Absolutely never moved. It was quite amazing. I mean, it just, he's, he's a heck of a horse and I just, I love him to death. That's but, awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And you on such an instinct, right? Did you ever have like a thought of this isn't going to be the horse for me with how hot he was when you first had him? Like, did you ever doubt it? Yeah, I, I did. I, I sitting there going, I can't get on Charlie. How on earth am I going to get on Shiloh? You know, he's everything I said I didn't want. He's high energy. He's tiny. Um, you know, I'm still afraid of low energy, huge, hulking Charlie. And I I really, but I just wasn't quite willing to give up on the dream. He was yep. so perfect for endurance and his movement was so fluid and easy. I just, I just loved this little horse. Wish he was six inches taller still, but you know, <laughs> a bullfrog had wings. He wouldn't bump his bump, buns every time he jumped either. Uh, you know, you, you, he is what he is. And that does make him a lot easier to get up on. Yeah, no, I, everyone, everyone loves a good little pocket rocket. I, I swear if I was, uh, you know, 50 pounds lighter, I would just ride ponies all the time. I, I love, I love ponies. I love naughty little ponies, <laughs> but uh, I, I have never in my life wanted a pony. I, I am not small and, and 50 pounds lighter would, while Shiloh would appreciate it, it would still not make him big enough really, but He's just so well balanced that he can handle it. He's that, uh, I was trying to describe him to somebody the other day. I said, he's, he's Mary Lou Retton. You know, I don't know if you've got a mental picture of Mary Lou Retton. Yeah. Mary Lou Retton is a fire plug. She is a dynamo and muscle and compact. And you just get the feeling that you could hang a hundred pound pack on that woman and she could hike for five miles with no trouble. Whereas everything else I think I've ever owned is more of a Nadia Kamenich. Graceful, beautiful, but just looks like a strong wind would blow her away. Right, right. You know? Yeah. Shiloh's, she's he's a fire plug. And it, it's kind of funny because the vet, I, I did an endurance ride just last weekend, and I had to mount up at the vets at one point using a picnic table because they didn't have a mounting block around and lord knows I don't mount from the ground at all so uh, they got to watch my incredible handicap assist horse 
helped me up onto a picnic table and then come around to where I needed him to be and stuff. And the vet was like, what kind of horse is he? And I said, he's a Tennessee walking horse. And she goes, I knew he was gating, but I don't think I've ever seen one built that way before. Yeah. He's just, he's just built. And, and everyone thinks he's about a half Arab and half paint until they see him walk off. But anyway, so the, the book's a little about my developing relationship with Shiloh, and it's a little bit about my developing friendship with Scott. We've gone from acquaintances to really close friends, uh, which is, I would love if I could tell you Scott was my son. I would be so proud of that. But unfortunately, his actual mother objected. So, you know, I can't do that. She wants to claim him for her own. But yeah. He's uh he's he's been an amazing an amazing man and getting to know him is probably the second best thing to come out of the story other than than getting finally back to writing. His wife is a, is is a dynamo. She's one of those people that walks into a room and her energy lights it up even before her actual body gets in the door. She's just an incredible woman. Yeah. No. What I, else do you I, want to know about the book? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that, so much so much I, I love I love everything I don't want to like spoil too much about like the book and the story itself because I, I want I feel like it was such a good read and I want everyone to kind of go out and read the story as you tell it but I have a couple like between the lines sort of questions and I, I know you kind of briefly mentioned um having had a fall before, but as someone who's been in horses for 60 years before the Skeeter incident, did you have a fall and was coming back from it easy? Because I know a lot of the people that I work with are starting to age, right? And they'll identify that like, I'm not sure if this fear is coming from aging because I used to be able to like get bucked off and laugh and get right back on. And it's like, you know, not a care in the world. So I was, I was just kind of curious to hear more about if you had had like serious falls um, before your Skeeter incident and, and falls that had related in. Uh, there's, there's no doubt whatsoever that as, as people age, as we age, uh, I tell people, I said, you know, when I hit the ground, I don't bounce anymore. I just splat. It's, it's just not pretty. Um, but I, I had, I've had my share of falls. You have to understand, even my best friend, I heard her tell somebody, you got to understand, I've seen Pam do a lot of stupid stuff on horses. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have, I had, I had cross country jumped. Um, I, I had broken my own horses. Uh, Bobby, who just died is the last one I owned that I actually broke myself, but, um, I had had a stallion and brood mares and colts. I've been kicked. I've been clobbered. Um, I will tell you a somewhat long but funny story that you will probably enjoy about that kind of thing. When I first got into endurance, I rode a man who had just finished the Tevis, which is the hardest endurance race in North America and one of the best, one of the hardest in the world. And I asked him if he'd be my mentor. Okay. And he said, sure. So, but that was before Facebook or anything. So we're just doing this through email. And he sends me a list of things that I should get started right away. One of which is to start the P90X exercise program. 
don't know if you've ever seen the P90X exercise program, but I'm pretty sure it's designed to get Army Rangers in shape. Yep. Um, it's insane. And I'm sitting at my computer reading this thinking, oh, yeah, right, sure, this man has no idea. At the time, I was uh, um, an aging, but still 50-ish sort of doctor, never been actually athletic. And now he wants me to do P90X. I don't think so. Right. Uh, but I didn't tell him that because I didn't want to lose him as a mentor and lose the other advice he might have. So we're emailing back and forth for about a year. I'm at an endurance ride in Southern Arizona, and I managed in possibly one of the most ironic accidents in the world to get the vent of my safety helmet caught in a branch of the only tree in a hundred yards. Oh my God. Got shoved off my horse like the hand of God shoved me off to the left. Landed on the same left side, by the way, I did with the Skeeter thing. But I didn't haul the horse down. Didn't have a chance. I just got shoved off. Landed on a rock on my hip. I thought I'd broken my hip. Oof. And it took me 20 minutes to decide. I, maybe it wasn't broken. and Maybe I could stand up. To stand up, as I was now standing on the rock I'd fallen on, I was able to just slide into the saddle and turn my horse around, holding on to the saddle front and front fore and aft, trying to stabilize my pelvis while we walked the five miles back to camp, where I was met by about nine ride officials who took me to my trailer and helped me off the horse, loaded me into my living quarters, stripped me of my down to my spandex, packed me in every bit of ice they had, brought me beer wine, vodka, rum, Percocet. I mean, everything they had that might help with the pain. I don't drink, I don't do drugs, so I didn't take those, but I was helping for the ice. Yep. I'm laying there and there comes a knock on the door and it's the main ride manager, everybody else is gone. She goes, Pam, I found a friend of yours. Here's Bruce, your mentor. He walks in, he's six foot two, 180 pounds, looks like a Greek god, curly blonde hair. And I'm laying there like nothing so much as a large fish on display at the seafood window at Kroger, packed in ice, uh, in my underwear, clothes everywhere. I look like an alcoholic with all the alcohol bottles people have brought. I look like a drug addict with all the drug bottles people have brought. And I'm like, could this get more embarrassing? Is there any way this could be any more embarrassing? <laughs> Bless his heart. He didn't say anything, although he looked horrified, I have to say. <laughs> oh my God. It doesn't get much worse than that, does it? It really doesn't. You know, the least he could have done was be fat and ugly, you know? Yep. yep. Or perhaps more than half my age. That would have been nice. <laughs> but and he's he's still my mentor, but he now gives me advice with a little bit more gentle hand uh <laughs> but uh, I drove home and <laughs> turned out I fra fractured my pelvis in three or four places and my crushed, crushed a, uh, my piriformis nerve and the muscle down my left side from that accident but I can't remember it took a while before I was able to get back on a horse but I don't remember having any qualms about doing it at all yep. um I'd had one other really nerve-wracking thing where I got nervous I um, I uh, fell off my show stallion in the show ring, which is hard to do with a walking horse, just to let you know. Okay. He had, 
he'd stumbled just a little bit and I had fallen forward just like I did with Skeeter seeing a bad habit here yep. uh, but when I when I fell I just fell off of him and he he accidentally hit me in the head with a with a hoof so I had concussion from that and I was pretty nervous riding him for a couple of three weeks after that but I just kind of did it and got over it um it wasn't anything like that but I was in my 40s then okay. I wasn't feeling fragile I was feeling you know like I knew what I was doing and I was tough and I was competent and that was just a freak accident but uh I think that it was the lead up to this accident that made it like I said it was the straw that broke the camel's back it it wasn't the majority of the load. The majority of the load was just the loss of confidence over the year or so ahead before it, as mm -hmm. I realized that I wasn't getting my riding skills back, that I couldn't rely on my body anymore to take care of me like it used to. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point because I feel like confidence so much comes from confidence, that feeling like you know you can do what's being asked of you. And so when you're going through this transitional period where you're not really trusting yourself, your skills, or your body, uh, it, it just took the fall to to reinforce it and sort of have that almost trauma response that you were experiencing. But it, it's not like it was, oh, you just went from feeling really good one day to completely panicked the next. Yeah, exactly. It was a slow, gradual, you know, thing. And it didn't help that as I was having the trouble getting back into riding, I, you know, I went to see medical experts. I went to see a, a very good sports medicine guy and, and his reaction was, A, you're getting older, you know, deal with it. And B, that he had seen this kind of problem in a lot of equestrians. He said, especially ones that have ridden a long time, he said that the as your body ages and you're still riding, as things get weaker, you develop compensatory mechanisms to deal with them. Yep. You know, you either get a stronger core because your back is weaker or, you you know, you get stronger thighs because your, your calves aren't as good or, you know, and he said, then there comes a period of time like they did with me, the two years where you don't ride. And yep. for some reason, he said, people lose those compensatory mechanisms. And now when they go back to riding, they aren't there anymore. Yep. That makes sense. And, you know, his reaction, he said, horse people who've had a two-year hiatus from riding, he goes, 10% of them maybe get back to riding. Wow. He said 90% of them will, will never, will, will not ever get comfortable riding again and will eventually give it up. Interesting. Yeah, so he was not very encouraging. So yeah. I drove 350 miles to get a second opinion from Bruce, the, the Greek god mentor who was who's a very good chiropractor and who knew the endurance sport. And uh, he at least gave me more hope. He said he thought he'd get, he thought I'd get back, but I I needed to work harder. <laughs> yep. I didn't tell him how afraid I was. I just was worried about my body at that point. Um, I assumed if my body got better that my mind would get better. But unfortunately, my body couldn't get better until my mind did. Yeah, yeah. It, and it, I, again, uh, something that I say to my clients is like, when when a physical injury occurs, or even in your case, just feeling like you're not as fit for it as you mm -hmm. used to be, 
uh, a mental injury also occurs and, and you have to treat a mental injury the same way you would treat a tendon injury in a horse. Like you're not going to yeah. be like, Oh, it scans clean. Like let's go for a gallop today. Uh, yeah. No, you have to build it back up and, and mm-hmm. getting people to view it that way and give it the respect that it needs of like a mental imagery has to rebuild um, almost exactly in the way that you describe in your book is it's, it's, it's what it takes. It, it's what it takes to get, get the confidence back. Well, and I, I don't remember when it actually occurred to me that what Scott was doing to me or for me, however you want to put it, was like an orthopedic surgeon putting someone in traction. Yep. I mean, you, you put people in traction because you want to, to slowly move the bones back where they belong and get the muscles to relax enough to let the bones go back where they'll belong. And, you know, it's just one, an, an inexorable slow tug in the right direction. And that, that's what he was doing with me was, you know, I, he's out of my pasture saying, doesn't this look like fun? Doesn't Shiloh look gorgeous? He's out leading a trail ride. You look how confident he is look at what I can do with this horse. And he did some stuff that scared me spitless. Let me tell you, I'm like, that's my new horse, Scott. Don't let anything happen to him, you know, but he never showed a, Scott never showed a, the slightest little bit of, of trepidation about anything. You know, he's like, it got to be winter. Come to, come to my barn and ride in the indoor arena. Just yeah. ride Charlie in the indoor arena, you know? And while, while I did that, he would ride Shiloh. Look at how look at how well behaved he is. He didn't say that. He just put him in front of me constantly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just just little bits and pieces of me coming back into alignment until the day I finally said, you know, I'm I mean, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, this is just flat out embarrassing. It is time for you to get on this horse. Right. And, and Scott even described it later. I mean, I didn't say that to him. I just said, I'm ready to ride him now. But Scott calls it the day that that I got got too ashamed not to ride anymore. Yeah. <laughs> he said, your fear of looking stupid overwhelmed your fear of Shiloh. And that's that's something that it just people ask. They're like, when am I not going to be afraid? When am I not going to be afraid? when the value of the thing that you're searching for finally outweighs the fear, finally outweighs the anxiety. And you'll still be afraid, but it'll just be worth it at that point. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very cool. I I still have my, my moments, not usually with Shiloh. It's usually with Max, but um, you know, and, and I say, this is a four year journey. Yep. People have asked me, why, what made you write a book? I mean, I'm not an author. I've never done this before. Um, but I was writing a letter to someone trying to tell them how grateful I was for what Scott had done for me. When I got to the end of two handwritten pages on printer paper, mind you, not nice stationery, and I wasn't done yet, I got thinking, you know, there's a book in this (laughs) and and so I wrote a book um then my husband says I need to now write another one and it needs to be called Max and the Empty Checkbook Uh, (laughs) well that's always part of horses too but uh (laughs) 
glad that you uh put the put the pen to paper and got the book out. Um, I feel like there's a lot of really good lessons just hearing it from someone's first point perspective. That being said, like now that you've gone through the experience and sort of had the time to reflect on what Scott did for you and how you incrementally made your way back, what would be the number one piece of advice you have to someone who has had a bad fall or might be experiencing some of that fear in the saddle? I think that the the number one piece of advice, well, before you do anything else, you have to decide whether getting back into it is worth it. Yep. I mean, I, I'm I'm afraid of heights. I'm never going to jump out of an airplane. There is nothing about jumping out of an airplane that is worth trying to get over my fear of heights. Right. And and for some people, getting over the fear of riding is not worth it. But you, so you have to have a strong enough why to go through it. Yep. Once you've decided that, that it's that it's it's something you want to do or need to do. Um, I think the leaning on your friends is probably the most important thing you can do. Um, I found a guy with the skill set to do it who turned out to be a friend. But on top of Scott, there were multiple other riding friends who stood next to me pretending to hold Charlie, who wouldn't move unless forced anyway, just to give me the courage to get up, who stood in the middle of my round pen watching me ride Charlie just to give me the courage to keep doing it. Well, Sue Fritchie, who sat there and read her Kindle, sitting on my mounting block in the middle of my round pen because I needed her presence to make me feel secure. And these are real friends. Um, and, and you have to give up the idea that you're so ashamed of, of being afraid to ride that you can't tell them because they can't help you if you won't tell them. Um, I think that, that is the most important thing. Like I said, yeah. I, I could feel that way just because the friend I lucked into to help me turned out to have the skills of a professional even though he's not trained as one, you know, that could be part of it too. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, even as sitting here as a, as a professional certified mental performance consultant, like I would echo your statement. Right. And I feel like what you're saying about like the, the guilt or the feeling like you can't tell them. I mean, I have, I have clients that say, oh, well, I don't, I don't tell my trainer that I work with you because I'm embarrassed. Right. I'm embarrassed that, <laughs> I'm working with you. And that to me, like, I mean, you need a, a trainer that you can trust with that and say like, Hey, like, you know, I might have some fear going up to these jumps. I might have some anxiety uh, mm -hmm. to do the things that I want to do. I'm working through these barriers. And uh, you know, I have other clients that collaboratively I've worked with trainers, right. With, with obviously mm -hmm. my client's permission, we've, we've kind mm -hmm. of created this think tank of what is the best solution because I'm not a horse trainer. Um, but I, I believe that the physical and technical side of riding does play into your mindset. And so I need to work and interplay what trainers are saying to be able to overcome mental hurdles. And I think what a lot of people get into too is like should statements of, oh, I should be able to just bounce right back. I'm physically yeah. healed. 
So I shouldn't have uh, fear any, anymore. And, and that to me is a cognitive distortion, right? It's not, it's not reality. It's not based in any truth. Like there's no reason that you should just go from having an injury to feeling 100%. You've got to give yourself time and you've got to appreciate and have the right people around you to get through that. Well, it's, it's, you know, fear, if you think of fear as a, a brain injury, I mean, it's a brain injury. There's no shame. If you break your leg, there is no shame in wearing a cast and going to an orthopedic surgeon and starting out riding again slowly after the cast comes off or wearing an ACE bandage or starting out at a walk instead of jumping five feet. There's, there's no shame in that. There's no shame when your brain has got an injury in, you know, you can't just put an ACE bandage around it. Sometimes what you need is a friend's presence sitting on the mounting block, reading her Kindle in the sun for an hour to, to help give your brain the support that it needs for you to do that. And there's no more shame in that than there is in putting a cast on a broken leg. Um, but I didn't see that for years. It took a long time for me to see that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, and, and I'm really grateful that I had people that showed that to me. Um, you know, yeah. Even though a lot of them didn't think I would ever come back. And I can't say I blame them considering what the statistics are. Yep. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting process. And as I am further and further away from it, I can sit back and look at it more clinically and, and I find it interesting. And I've, I've had a lot of talks with Scott about um, what he did yep. now that now that he's not doing it for me particularly anymore. Uh, he's more open about what he did. I had a very interesting conversation with him. I talk a little bit about it in the book where I asked him, how come I didn't know you do this? I mean, this is an amazing thing you've done for me. And I didn't even know you could. I had no idea you'd ever done this for other people. And he, he flat out told me, he said, I, I don't advertise it or anything because I don't enjoy doing it, which crushed me. I mean, this man spent every spare minute of his time for the last year with me, working with me. And, and now he's telling me that he hated every minute of it. It's like, I'm, I was pretty upset. And he goes, you, you don't understand. It's not that. You were fine. He said, and then I, felt, then I felt like I was being placated, but I was willing to accept it at that point because I was so hurt. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, he, said, he said, you were fine. The couple of people he had actually mentioned to me that he had done it for, he said, they were fine. Because you guys really, really wanted to get back right. He said, but there are some people that have a bad accident and they get afraid and they really are just as happy to use that accident and the fear as an excuse not to ride anymore. They're done for them. And he didn't say this, but that's where I get the idea. The first thing you have to do is decide whether or not it's worth it. Um, For those people, it wasn't worth it. And there's Mm -hmm. no shame or fault in that. I mean, like, there's no, it's not worth it to me to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Um, But 
in that case, if they let their pride talk Scott into helping them, then the way Scott put it, he goes, think about how you'd feel if we'd spent this last year when you really didn't want it. And I got thinking about it. Well, how, what would I what would I feel if I'd spent a year and I knew Scott had spent a year because of my pride when I really didn't want to get any better? I'd be mad. Yeah. And I'd be upset. And being I'd I'd be unlikely to be mad at myself. I'd be mad at Scott. Because that's a lot easier than being mad at yourself, no right. matter how much it's your fault. Yep. And then I would have blamed him. And whereas I'm pretty sure Scott's that's a tough, tough old coot. I'm sure he could have handled it if I had never gotten any better. It would have been very hurtful to him if I had not gotten any better and then blamed him for it. Yeah, 100%. You know, that just, I think that the people that do this, the way I put it is the, those that make us, face our fears also make us face ourselves yep and the times during the year and a half or so that scott really worked with me that i had to face the fact that not only am i not the horsewoman i used to be um i'm not ever going to be the horsewoman i used to be i've got a new reality i had to face that fact i was okay with it in the end because Old age is a privilege denied to many, but it's still a less than pleasing fact. And if I'd have had to have faced the fact that, and now I have to go find out who I am because I'm no longer the horsewoman I was for the last 60 plus years, I, I don't think I would have handled that very well. No, it, it, it would have been a hard thing to cope with. And it's wonderful that you were able to find not only the right person, but the right horse, right? I, I think a Absolutely. couple of times reading the book, I was imagining who, what if Shiloh wasn't so quiet, right? Like what if Shiloh hadn't been such a good boy? And he's not quiet. He's not yeah. quiet to this day. I right. mean, Saturday, Shiloh carried me 50 miles in eight hours. Wow. Um, you know, you don't do that being quiet. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, it, it, and that was after trailering 600 miles on, on Wednesday. And then we did that on Friday and then Sunday we came home again. Wow. Um, you know, so he, he's not naturally quiet, but he's willing to harness his energy for me. Which is awesome. And it's really pretty amazing. You know, yeah. 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 It's been an amazing journey. Um, I just, I really can't express enough my gratitude to the people that helped me through it. Um, and my gratitude to, to God for putting in my way. I mean, what are the odds that the kid I knew who now just happens to live in this city would have the skill set to help me get better? that the new city we just moved to would contain a friend of my longest childhood friend who'd be willing to come read her Kindle while she sat in the middle of my round pen, even <laughs> though she hadn't even known me in a, a year before. And that Shiloh would not only be for sale, but for sale by a guy with a cast on his leg 
just sort of designed to prove to me that he wasn't too small, that he had the skill set to do what I needed him to do. I mean, those those are just three things that happened that's just a little bit more than I want to believe is coincidence. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think that's, that's kind of a, a great point to wrap up on and, and say like, uh, get the book. If you're interested, uh, three steps up to mediocrity. It's on Amazon. Do you have it anywhere else for sale or no. is it just through Amazon? You know, Amazon is the easy place to self-publish and I don't know how to do it. So, um, yeah, it's on Amazon. I okay. mean, it's, I, I, I wrote it on my computer, printed it off on my printer. Uh, talked to the lady who used to, uh, be the, um, who was the editor for me when I wrote, I used to write articles for magazines and she collated it into a form that she said, she said, no editor is going to accept 22 separate word documents, one for each chapter, Pam, you've got to do better than this. So she picks that up and I I sent it to another friend who has a publishing company uh, that it's not her kind of book, but she book designed it. She put it together, made sure it's legible, made sure the pictures fit. Uh, and and uh, then it, I was asking and talking to another friend who said, you do realize I used to be the publicist for a major publishing company. And I said, no, I had no idea. She goes, well, let me show you how to market this. So this is a collation of three of my friends, okay. <laughs> all, all working essentially for free. <laughs> <laughs> and me printing something up on my printer and uh, handing it to the main character to to read. And let me tell you, that's the longest 12 hours of your life. I mean, you've written a book, you hand it to this guy that you're immensely grateful to, and the book's about him, and you want his opinion. And it's like being a darn Labrador retriever at an adoption center, standing in front of the 12-year-old boy, wagging your tail, going, please love me, please love me, take me home, please love me, please, 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 please. It's the hardest thing in the whole world. (laughs) And then we uploaded it to Amazon. (laughs) And there it sits. Uh, We've sold 650 copies, which is uh, very, um, I mean, the average self-published book sells 250 in its lifetime. And and Three Steps has been out for four months. So uh, I'm incredibly pleased with 650 copies. And actually, it seems to, the rate of sales seems to be going up. So people, I think, are telling their friends. Um, it's available in Kindle or in paperback. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, you know, I absolutely, if you buy, buy a copy and you would like it, signed if you want to email me i will send you a signed book plate to put in it um uh, my email is is mizdoc m-i-z-d-o-c at aol.com that's how old i am i have a six letter aol mailbox (laughs) Uh, and my friends wouldn't know how to get a hold of me if i changed (laughs) (laughs) very cool very cool. Yeah. And I, like I said to you before, I, I've already sent uh, the book to some of my clients and uh, hope to send the podcast out to some people that pique their interest. And I know our listeners are big bookies, um, which is actually kind of how I want to wrap wrap up the show. We have a segment on the podcast that we do all the time called Books, Books, Books. And I know you mentioned uh, in your book that you 
are a reader, you love to read. Um, mm-hmm. And so I always like to ask, what's one book that you're currently reading and one book that you feel shaped your view of the world? Well, the book that shaped my view of the world, I think, is Magnificent Obsession. Um, oh, I heard of that one. You haven't heard of that one? No. Uh, oh, my gosh. You've got to read. It's, it's, it's very old. It, okay. Magnificent Obsession. And it's uh, it's it's by the same guy who wrote The Robe, uh, Lloyd C. Douglas. Okay. It's it's religious to some degree, but it ends like a bad soap opera. But okay. the religious philosophy he puts forward in that book, I found to be incredibly moving and interesting. And it has stayed with me since I read it as a teenager. Wow. Um, awesome. It's 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 not a religious tract. It's it's a story actually of a of a ne'er do well young man who is uh, injured in a stupid accident and saved by them borrowing medical equipment from one of their neighbors. And the neighbor dies from lack of that medical equipment that night. He has an accident the same day. And the the neighbor is a world-renowned neurosurgeon. And so this this young man is told basically that his life wasn't worth trading for Dr. Hudson's, and he's worthless. And it's his voyage of discovery from there. It's a very interesting novel. It also becomes a little bit eh, romancy, harlequiny towards the end. (laughs) But okay. you know you can put up with that for the rest of it. Oh, that that's one that's 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 actually um, uh, stuck with me for my entire seventy some years. Uh, I, right now, I just finished the the glucose revolution uh, because for my chronic pain, my pain doctor suggested that I try to level out my glucose levels, um, and my mentor told me to lose weight, and they both recommended this book. So. I had to read that about a diet, uh, and I'm also um, reading a, a semi-mystery uh, novel. I just finished The Disappeared, um, I can't remember who it's by, and I am just finished it, and I'm reading The Saint of Wolves and Butchers, Ooh, um, very which cool. is pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, those, those are both, those are both been interesting. I wouldn't call them great uh um, literature, or yeah, I'm not sure I'll reread either one of them. I like to keep an audiobook going because I travel in the truck a lot to and from trails or you know, like the 600 miles we just went to Detroit last weekend. Um, and I keep one in the bathroom and I keep one on my bedside. I'll tell you the book that I have been most grateful for over the last 10 years uh, and, and something I would recommend to anyone uh, in but particularly people trying to do something like ride or recover. doesn't matter if you're afraid of horses or cars or heights or whatever you're trying to recover from. I bought a 10-year journal. Okay. The cool thing about this journal is, is that each page is a date. So today's date sits on a page and there's four lines allotted to each of 10 years. So when I go to to August 15th of 2023, right above it are the four lines from 2022 and above that, the four lines from 2021 and and on up for 10 years. So you can see 
as you write your journal for today, you can see what you were doing a year ago or three years ago or four years ago and how things have changed and and what's what's new, what's different, or what's sort of the same. I mean, yep. I'm, I'm on year seven right now of my 10-year journal. And seven years ago, I was still trying to diet. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, well, that's frustrating. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if, if the journal went 17 or 27 years back, I'd still be trying to diet. <laughs> but I would highly recommend that for anyone. I have I have got each one of my kids one. I've recommended them to all kinds of people. But it's so rewarding to look back a year ago. Or sometimes it's a kick in the pants to look back a year ago and realize you were doing the same thing then that you are now. Maybe you ought to change your approach. Yeah, yeah. It's I, I actually I have a five year journal, um, and it's it's only two lines each, and there's like a prompt on every page, and I'm on year two right now, and already, um, you know, my boyfriend and I have been together for a little over a year, so it was fun to go through like when we started dating, and I was like, oh, Tommy, like I started writing about you in the journal today, and like you know, exactly, uh, what, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I was able to tell my husband. Oh yeah, last year you were having open heart surgery right about now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fun to keep track of stuff like that, and always fun. I always say you can't really uh, see growth uh, while while you're just living your day to day life. Like sometimes it takes pressure to see growth. Sometimes it takes taking a step backward to see growth, and uh, sometimes absolutely connect the dots at all. So having something that helps you connect the dots is always a, a great resource. So I'm glad you brought that up. I, I adore my 10-year journal. I, I just think it's fantastic. Sometimes I have to remind myself, my kids, when I die, my kids might be reading it. I might be more gentle on them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Well, um, I've had so much fun uh, talking to you today, Pam. Is there anything else that you wanted to say or get out to our listeners before we wrap up the recording? I, I would just like to say that, you know, if if you've got a fear, if you've got PTSD, which I finally did get a therapist who told me that, yeah, this is this is classic PTSD. Just because you aren't a soldier doesn't mean you you can't have it. Um, if If you have a fear, Decide if it's worth if it's worth the work to get over. Yeah. And once you've made up that made up your mind that it is, know that it's a long journey, but that it's worth it. You've already decided it's worth it. And once you decided it was worth it, then you decided the outcome. The only question is how long will it take? And and it'll take what it takes. Uh, you I've had a lot of messages from people who've read the book some of whom are discouraged by how long it's taking and some of whom are, they're like, I want to go camping and ride the Grand Canyon. So I went, but then I was too afraid to get out of my camper. They didn't understand. You have to do the small steps first. Yeah. You know, even babies crawl before they walk. Um, and now we're, we're back to that. We have to take the small steps, but once you decide that it's worth it, you've accomplished it already. You just now have to put the work in. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That's like the foundation of um, acceptance commitment therapy, which is what I, I do a lot of my practicing out of. It's it's how do you value the thing that you're trying to overcome? And once you have your values in place, like if you're not happy, it's not the end, right? You're still working through it. It's still yeah. going to be a journey. Um, and you just keep pushing through every little thing that's going to come up. 
Well, and then when you think it's done, um, maybe you need a friend like Scott to push you a little further. Uh, I'll leave you with what he said, told me about Max. He said, buying Max is the best thing you probably could have done because you watching you for the last year on Shiloh has been like turning your six-year-old out with his new dirt bike and watching him going around and around the moguls you've built in the yard. It's fun. It's a little scary. He's taking risks you might wish he wouldn't take, but he's having so much fun at it. He goes, but to do the next step, you had to do it with another horse. He goes, you could have done it with Shiloh the rest of your life and been happy as long as Shiloh was alive. Mm-hmm. He goes, but now you need to know that you can transfer it to another horse. And that's what Max is for. Max is to tell you that the next time you and the, the riding ladies go out trail riding, when one of your friends says, oh, you want to ride my new super duper fantastic cool horse, you can say, yeah, instead of, oh, no, I don't ride anything but Shiloh. <laughs> He said, you had to take that next step, even though, even though I was content where I was, it it did take him to push me on to the next step. And and there's probably always going to be a next step somewhere. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Pam, I feel like we could keep talking for hours, but uh, I think that's a great nugget of wisdom to leave it on. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this time and this conversation with me. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. All right. Awesome. awesome. Any opportunity to talk about my friend Scott, I will take in heartbeat. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. And in the meantime, enjoy the ride.